my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. We started a charter school. It was the first all-boys African-American charter school. John King was our proctor. And John talks to me and goes, okay, listen, at the next board meeting, we're going to have some problems because of our 23 teachers. I'm not renewing the contracts on 11 of them. I said, what? These parents have got placards, no, no, we won't take it, no, no, we won't take it, they're chanting all this stuff. And so here I am, white guy living in Connecticut from Memphis, chairman of the board, and I said to him, okay, listen, here's the bottom line. Went through it with the parents, went through it with the teachers, cried, commiserated, and we said we're going to move on. Three years later, out of 543 elementary schools in New York, including all the suburbs, we were number one. I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Today, we're going to dig into the creation of one of the world's most innovative poverty-fighting organizations, the Robin Hood Foundation. It fights poverty in New York City, and to take us through it all, and his life too, is our guest, Paul Tudor Jones. 
Paul is a very successful hedge fund manager through his company, Tudor Investments. He is a Southerner from Memphis, went to college in Virginia, lived in New Orleans before coming to New York in 1978, a real low time for New York for those who remember it, but a time when a lot of young people from all over the world were converging on the city to make their mark in everything from art and dance to media and finance. He was part of that. And he definitely made his mark in both finance and philanthropy. Paul is an avid outdoorsman, a conservationist, and a wildly curious guy. His mother said he was going to be a preacher. And listening to him on his most passionate subjects, you can see why. Paul, welcome. It's good to see you, Bob. Before we get started, we're going to dig into you in 60 seconds. You ready? Yeah. Do you prefer Memphis or New York City? Ooh-wee. Well, it's my rut, so I got to say Memphis. Vanilla or chocolate? Mm, Vanilla. Solitaire or poker? Definitely community spirits better, poker. Boxing or basketball? Love boxing. Hunting or fishing? Ooh, killer. Love hunting. Day or night? Love day. Debt or equity? Love equity. It's about to get harder. Secret talent? I think I'm a good problem solver. Favorite song? Have to be September, Earth, Wind, Fire. Body, ah. Most prized possession? The old man, the boy. Signed by Nash Buckingham. Smartest person you know? Bill Gates. Childhood hero? James Brown. Historical idol? Teddy Roosevelt. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Heal things through love. Worst fad or fashion trend you've participated in? Oh, God. Paisley and polka dots in the 70s. Who would play you in a movie? (laughs) Of course, Brad Pitt. Proudest achievement? Being part of Robin Hood. Final question. Best live concert? Earth, Wind, and Fire in the early days with the three pyramids. Okay, here we go. Let's get started with the big question. In 1988, you started the Robin Hood Foundation along with three friends, including Glenn Dubin and Peter Borsch. And when you came to New York, if the reports are correct, you only had $1,700 in capital. Yet only 10 years later, you're ready to save those in need in our city. Where did this big, bold idea come from? There's a great saying, don't get above your raisin. You should know that, being from Mississippi. And what that really says is don't forget where you came from. I, like you, came to New York. I didn't know anybody. I was just a kid who wanted to make it in the big city. I was in the right place at the right time. And a lot of things broke my way. Very, very early on, I felt a sense of social obligation to try to give others the same kind of breaks that helped me on my journey. And why did you think you could do it? It's funny, the 80s were a crazy time. It was all about glitz and money, and I don't want to use the word greed, but it was more materialistic. The first thing I tried to do is rather than reinvent the wheel, was just try to find where can I go and just get straight into poverty fighting. And it was really hard to find any one organization dedicated to that. And I knew that if I did it myself, and particularly if I recruited a bunch of my friends that could bring business principles to it that would have a very significant impact. So give everyone listening your description of the Robin Hood Foundation and really a then and now, this original thought and how it's evolved. So this is 88, 89. We were a bunch of inexperienced, somewhat naive do-gooders who were probably better at effort than at results. It was really all about just being on the streets, having a presence, and trying to do good. 
we were really, really focused on bringing our hearts and our energy into helping people. And we thought that just love on its own would be enough, love and obviously capital. As we went through time, we found that there's a lot of difference between effort and outcome. In the early 90s, as we began to expand our board, we got really smart people like yourself, like John Sykes, like Stan Druckenmiller, John F. Kennedy Jr., Jan Winter, a variety of people. We began to start to hold ourselves accountable, not just for the effort that we were making, but more importantly, for the results that we were getting. And so we really brought an outcome-based model to philanthropy. And that was at that time, it was almost a radical idea that we were going to apply business principles, measurement, metrics, accountability, goal setting. Did you achieve your goals? Why didn't you achieve your goals? Can we add various forms of assistance? If an organization didn't have management strengths, would bring in a variety of consulting firms to help them shore up their manager. If they didn't know real estate because they were trying to acquire a building or rent a building or whatever, they didn't understand the tax laws or any number of different things. And so we started bringing pro bono a lot of the best that Wall Street had to offer and the financial and real estate business had to offer to these organizations in an attempt to get them to be that much more effective in trying to serve those in need around them. You talked about the metrics. We're really going to evaluate you. We're going to bring assistance to you, management help, in essence, consulting services. But when you monitored it, Robinhood defunds about 10% of the organizations every year, meaning you stop funding them. And that had to be hard because you sort of fall in love with these organizations. Was that difficult in the beginning? And where did that one come from? Think about the greatest progress that civilization's ever experienced. It's generally been in market-dictated economic systems, right? The invisible hand, centrally planned ideas. We've got centuries of proving that that's not the most optimal model. So the market brings a great discipline. In our particular case, what I call the market is simply there's a huge growing need for help and services in poor communities. The way we approach things were, we're going to have the biggest impact for the most number of people in need, and that's going to drive everything. Everything else is going to be secondary, including in some unfortunate instances where what may have been a great idea in one year, five years later was past its due date. It's amazing how the face of poverty changes. And so we were very disciplined, and we still are today, about making sure that our dollar is going to travel as far as it possibly can to serve the greatest social good that there is by targeting the greatest area of needs where just a little marginal help can have a geometric impact on it. You also had another innovation, which was the board covers the administrative cost of the organization. So if you're a donor... The money you give is going to the program. Where did that idea come from? Intellectual capital is worth so much more than financial capital. The power of a good idea is going to be worth all the money in the bank in the whole world. Just think about the great tech companies that have sprung up in the past 20 years. The same thing applies in philanthropy. So 
we wanted to have a staff and we wanted to have a board that was the best in class when it came to understanding and finding solutions. And so we didn't want to be constrained. In that sense, we're going to say we're going to hold everyone else harmless if we decide to overspend on trying to figure out problems. And instead, we're going to have 100% of our donors' capital go straight into solutions by various other service providers, on the streets folks doing the actual work. And we were going to be a curator, so to speak, for any donor that wanted to give capital that they want to know they're going to have a big impact, we'd curate it and we'd pay that cost of curation ourselves. And it's been a great model. And many organizations have copied it. Are there two or three things that you've discovered over this period that correlate perfectly with poverty? If we can fix this, we're going to solve poverty. The number one thing clearly is education. High school education gets you a per capita income, I want to say, in the neighborhood of just over $30,000 on average per year, whereas a college education will get you, I think, in the low 50s. So clearly, as you increase your educational level, the statistics would argue that your chances of being poverty-stricken drop and diminish greatly. So, and if you don't get high school education, you're going to oh my be Lord, in poverty. There's a great chance you're going to be in poverty. Probably 50% of the thrust that we've done over the past two decades is trying to provide quality education to kids from low-income neighborhoods and trying to give them the right toolkit to be able to go out and earn a living. Poverty is so much a function of the educational opportunity, and unfortunately, so much of that's a function of the area code. I've been on the board for a few decades, even served the term as chairman of the board, and so I've been up close with Robin Hood. What has fascinated me is that Robin Hood has avoided letting politics seep in. We have people on the left, we have people on the right, but they all seem to come together on this common mission to try and eradicate poverty in New York City. How did you manage to achieve that? What lessons are there there of getting a big tent as opposed to a small tent? Well, it's funny. We had baptism by fire in the very, very early phases of Robin Hood. I can't remember. Were you on the board when John F. Kennedy Jr. and Jan Winter were on there and we were going through the needle exchange? Oh, yes. I remember that. So that was one of the most fascinating. Tell everybody the story of what was going on. At that point in time, the way you defined poverty in New York was somebody who was a drug user with AIDS. That person for sure was going to be living on the streets in poverty, spreading AIDS and inflicting a huge social cost on other New Yorkers of all ilks. It was a really frightening time. That's when everyone was terrified of AIDS. Our staff came to us and said, look, there's a really easy solution to really making a dent in the AIDS epidemic. And that is, why don't we provide free clean needles to users That just set off an absolute war on our board. And what was so interesting was, on the left, we had John F. Kennedy Jr. and Jan Winter who going, you can't give free needles as an organization. We'll just be attacked. We'll be toasted. And then on the right, you had Stan Druckenmiller and Ken Langone, one a famous money manager, one a very famous investor who started Home Depot, very conservative, who went, who cares? We're here to save people's lives. These are people in need, medical need, as well as poverty-stricken, and this is the way to do it. And ultimately, after a very vigorous debate, we 
voted and agreed we're going to do that. Now, at the time, that was a really radical idea. There's a lot of blowback on all of us. What was so interesting, within five years, that idea not only became widely adopted, but the city took over funding from us. And the state, now it just goes without saying, you're going to provide users clean needles because you don't want to have dirty needles spreading AIDS. And I would say that literally turned the tide on the AIDS epidemic in New York. The one thing that we've always done on that board, irrespective of the board composition, irrespective of what mayor we've had, from de Blasio to Rudy Giuliani, right? We've had the biggest spectrum you can imagine. We've been apolitical, and we've said we have one and only one job, and that's we're going to serve the neediest people in New York City. That's our only mission, and everything else is secondary to that. And we've stayed true to that, and that's why I think the organization continues to thrive 30-plus years later. Just to put Robin Hood in perspective for people that don't know it, Robin Hood's given away about $3 billion so far. Yes. Raised a couple of hundred million a year. Yes. And by the way, spends the money in the year, doesn't build up this huge endowment, but really tries to put it to work as soon as we can. So we're going to come back to Robin Hood, but I want to get some context on you first. So let's go back in time. You and I are almost the same age. We both grew up in the deep South in the late fifties and sixties, early seventies. Can you paint us a picture of life in those times living in Memphis, Tennessee? My mother and father were pretty liberal, particularly for Memphis. One of the craziest times I remember was when Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis. But I remember at that time, my dad being really scared, and he took a shotgun and loaded it and put it at our front door because we thought Memphis was going to burn. That was the time when they first had busing to try to stop segregation It was a highly divisive time. It's the only other time I can remember where I thought the country was as divided as it is today. But through all that, I remember my mother used to always take me to revivals. And so it'd be my mother and I and a tent full of black folks. And the minister would get happy. And then, of course, it'd be time for the laying on the hands. And we'd go up, step over about eight bodies in the way. And when that guy would put his hands on your head, the Holy Spirit was coursing through your body at that point in time. It was always a really happy time. My mother would get so happy, I would get happy. It was fantastic. That probably was important for what I do now because she just thought about, where am I going to go to be part of a community? where love and faith is at its basis, and I'm going to look without anything other than a huge, happy heart at the rest of the world and engage from that standpoint. I think that's always had a big impact on me and what I do. You were quoted as saying your mother told you you'd be a preacher. What did you really want to be as a kid? (laughs) When I was five years old, I knew I was going to be a millionaire. I kept telling my mother, I'm going to be a millionaire. I don't know if I've got time for preaching. I'm going to do that. And I also wanted to be president of the United States, but I got sidetracked in the money business. So your dad was a lawyer. He published the business publication for Memphis. Right. Anyone in your family a trader? My uncle was the biggest cotton speculator in the world. My whole family were a long line of bridge players. So 
when I was a kid, I played every single game ad infinitum. I played Monopoly. I played poker. I played chess, Parcheesi, Life. When there was no one around, I'd play solitaire. By the time I got to college, I already had a PhD in probability theory just from all the games I played as a kid. And is that the heart of being a good trader? I think so. I think so. And do you think we've lost that now because of all this electronic devices? Do kids not play these games? Do they not learn the probability in the gut like you did? Well, I think some do, and then I think some don't. The iPhone, I think we're going to look back and say that was a great step backwards for humanity. And I say that because I'm really worried about how that phone is disconnecting the human race from the planet. I think some of the ills that we have today with regard to the environment are a function of the fact that we all get lost in that phone and we've lost some of the connection that we have with nature. If I just look at our youth today, you look at the suicide rates, the episodes of loneliness, detachment, this FOMO fear. I don't know if that was the case when you and I grow up. I spent my entire afternoons outside all the way till dusk. And we learned social skills and we learned interaction and there was no such thing as loneliness. Kids today have a much tougher time. And I think the phone is actually not our friend. I think it's our foe. You were an avid outdoors person, hunting and fishing. You were that as a kid too, right? My dad took my brother and I fishing from when I was eight or nine years old, and I just loved the outdoors so much. It was my favorite thing to do. I was living for the weekend, but the weekend was in the woods. You were a boxer too, weren't you? I did do that. Any lessons from boxing? Muhammad Ali was my hero, and so I tried to I tried to mimic him. I was a poor substitute. I learned to run like a absolute rabbit, but I had a pretty good record. I think I was 22 and three or four, something like that. I really, really enjoyed boxing. It was a great way to find out what kind of will you had. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing. But I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. 
And Ramp Software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Paul Tudor Jones. You were a commodities trader in New Orleans. You came to New York on the trading floor of the New York Cotton Exchange. Who the hell knew there was such a thing in New York? Mm -hmm. You were a whiz kid at EF Hutton. I think you were vice president by age 25. And then you started Tudor Investment Corp. What was the concept? Why? Why'd you make that jump? So when I first came to New York, I very quickly became a floor trader. I was in the cotton pit, and then pretty soon I started trading orange juice and then gold and sugar. Then there were 50 people around me, half of them were ex-football players because you had to be really strong in that pit and physical. My father kept going, why don't you quit this business and do something legitimate like real estate and quit this legalized gambling in the futures markets and do something with yourself? He talked me into applying and going to Harvard Business School. So I actually applied. I was accepted. It was Labor Day. I was just getting ready to turn 26. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, this is insane because I'm making unreal amounts of money every day, every month. What are they going to teach me about my craft? Zero zilch. So I didn't go to Harvard. I stayed. 
And that's when I decided to start a business to manage money on behalf of other people because I missed all that camaraderie. I missed being part of a team. I wanted to feel something more significant than just being a loner making a lot of money with a big bank account. When you started it, what was the concept for it? I was just going to take guys like you, anybody around that would give me some money that would invest in my fund, and I was going to manage the money for them, and I'd take 20% of the profits. When I first started, I had to beg, borrow, and steal to raise $300,000. It was the hardest money raised of my entire life. And then once we got going, it became pretty easy after that. How quickly did it grow? That was back when the markets really used to move a lot. So I was having kind of 100% years all the time. I was probably young and dumb, taking a lot more risk than I take now, but the markets were so phenomenal back then. It was the greatest time to be a trader of all time. So we've had people on Math & Magic talking about the brands of TV networks, talent agencies, music companies, investment firms, and more. You're the first hedge fund we've had on. What do you think that brand stands for, and how have you consciously thought about it? I think it's evolved over the decades. In the 80s, they were extraordinary vehicles for really high returns. They've almost done a 180 in terms of the risk profile that most hedge funds take. They've become much more like the establishment where they're just trying to beat normal stock returns or any passive investment by anywhere from, say, 8 to 12% in a given year. I think most hedge funds have lowered expectations. Now, part of that might be because the audience that invested in hedge funds has changed so much over the past three decades. It used to be a lot of individuals, a lot of lawyers, dentists, and doctors, who that was a marginal investment in their portfolio. And today it's shifted to a lot of pension funds, endowments, a lot of institutional money who have a completely different risk profile. You called the 87 crash and profited from it. I think you called the 0809 recession. Is that just part of what you do, or was that a big event for you? They were big events. They happened only occasionally. You see, you have to realize we're all products of our environment, right? In the 70s, I was a commodity trader. In 74, 75, we had a searing recession. When I came to New York, the trash was stacked one story high. The idea that I was going to be in the stock market when we were in this incredible recession and New York City was virtually bankrupt, forget it. I didn't want to be subject to that vicissitude. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get in commodities because everyone's always going to need to eat. They're going to need cotton to wear clothes. They're going to need beef, et cetera. And it just so happened I got in commodities in the roaring inflation of the 70s when inflation went into double digits and markets were literally going up by a multiple of three and then down 90% doing round trippers year by year by year. Here I am in the pit watching. I remember Bunker Hunt went from the richest man on earth by a multiple of 10 worth over $10 billion to bankruptcy in 18 months. And so that had a big impact on me. I wasn't going to be Warren Buffett and buy and hold. Buy and hold where I stood was a great way for financial tragedy and death. Is that a young man's mind or is that a logical perspective? I actually think I'm the single most conservative investor on planet Earth. I would never do what Warren Buffett does. The idea that I'm going to buy and hold and be subject 
to these economic forces that I can't control. It doesn't fit with my risk profile. It fits with Warren's. God bless his soul. He's got a gazillion times more money than I do. But in 2008, he was down 50%, and I was kind of unchanged up a little bit. And I slept a lot better in 2008 than he did, though he's going to unequivocally have outperformed me over the length of our career. So I just don't ever want to lose money. I just don't. If I've got something that's losing money, I sell it. How has the brand of you and Tudor Investments changed over time? The general brand is the same, which is that I'm the most risk-averse person that's ever going to manage money. The other thing that's changed is that my appetite is probably down significantly from where it was 30 years ago. I don't know whether that's testosterone. I don't know whether because I've got more money, I'm not as aggressive. I've been trading for 44 years. It's very difficult to get to my age and continue trading without finding that work-life balance. I don't want to have to wake up in the middle of the night. Well, I wake up every night, three o'clock anyway, but I don't want to have to wake up sweating in the middle of the night. And I remember times in my younger days, boy, I'd wake up pitted out because I knew I was on the biggest Bronco that had ever been ridden. I wasn't sleeping. I kind of enjoyed the adrenaline from it a bit, but then after a while, it just became physically too deleterious. And so I had to, I think over time, I just backed off. Let's go back to your life of giving. What had you done before Robin Hood? Right before Robin Hood, I was watching 60 Minutes in 86, and I saw this guy, Gene Lang, who went back to his old high school in Harlem. He found out that the college entrance rate from that school was like 8%. And he said, this is horrible. So he gave the commencement address to the sixth grade and said, if any of you graduate from high school, I'll pay your college tuition. And I thought that was such an uplifting story. And at the time, I thought, I can do this. I can unequivocally do this. So I called him up. I said, okay, I want to do this. Apparently, four or five other people had seen the show, too. We all met at his apartment. He said, look, I'm going to start a foundation. Long story short, I adopted a school in Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy, do or die, still love it. Spoke at the sixth grade commencement, and then I had 86 boys and girls that I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to absolutely love these folks to death, and we're all going to college. All of us are going to college. That probably did more to inform me of what to do at Robin Hood because four years in, I'll never forget, I had a house down on the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. I built this huge log cabin out back, and I had all the kids down there. We had a kind of a girl's dorm and a boy's dorm. One summer, one of the girls miscarried. I didn't know how to deal with teenage pregnancy. I didn't know how to deal with all the social issues that these kids were having. I had no experience, no background. All I had was a checkbook and a big heart. And what I found out really quickly was that that wasn't enough. If you didn't have the skill sets to deal with the variety of social issues that these kids had, forget even trying to learn academics. First, do they even have a stable enough home life to be able to go to school and not be fearful? Fearful for their own safety, fearful when they went home that they were going to have a safe and a warm and a loving home, fearful that they weren't going to be in a crime area that was going to allow them to do their work. There were so many social issues. That was when I learned, okay, 
if you're going to get into this poverty fighting business, you better be equipped. And that was when I started trying to find the smartest people to be able to deal with them one by one by one. So you have a holistic approach to attacking whatever the problem was. And so that was a hell of a learning experience for me. Let me give you a shout out. Excellence Charter School in bed Proving all kids can do well. Over three-quarters of the students qualified for free or reduced-price lunches, poverty, and they test above both city and state averages for math. Great congratulations, and I know you put your heart and soul into that one. Well, that was actually a continuation of the I Have a Dream project that I talked about in 1986, because what I learned 10 years into that was getting kids at 12 years of age was 12 years too late. So I said, okay, if we're going to get in the education business, let's get in it. We started a charter school. It was the first all-boys African-American charter school, and then we started a sister school, all-girls, about four or five years later. That was also a hell of a journey. Year one, everything's great. We went K-1-2, everything's great. Year two, first semester, we're kind of doing some testing and stuff. Everything's great. We got to the second semester of year two, and I had this fabulous headmaster. If you look at our early board of excellence, it's like the who's who of great educators in America. It's amazing. Norman Atkins, David Salzman, Jabali Sawicki. We really had some incredible people. John King, the Secretary of Education under Obama, was our proctor. He brought him in in year two. I'll never forget, Norman came up and said, listen, Paul, John wants to talk to you because we're going to have to make some changes. So I said, great, no problem. And John talks to me and goes, okay, listen, at the next board meeting, we're going to have some problems because of our 23 teachers. I'm not renewing the contracts on 11 of them. I said, what? He goes, no, 11 of them are not coming back. And I said, John, God, you can't do that. You can't let 11 teachers go. He said, well, you told me that the reason the name of this school is excellence is because you wanted to be the top performing school in the city and you wanted excellence. And if you want that, we've got a couple of teachers here that just don't have their heart and soul in it the way they should. They're working hard, but they don't have the pedagogical skills to be able to do the job they need to. I said, Norman, I don't know if we can do this. He said, if you don't do this, John King, who's the greatest single educator in America today, is going to leave. So you have a choice. Is it the teachers or is it the kids? Because if you want to be great, you have to do what John says. And he goes, at the board meeting, they're going to protest, and then a lot of the parents are going to be there. So we have this board meeting. All of a sudden, here come, holy cow, a hundred parents. I swear it reminded me of the sit-ins of the 60s. These parents have got placards, no, no, we won't take it, no, no, we won't take it, they're chanting all this stuff. And so here I am white guy living in Connecticut from Memphis, chairman of the board. And I said to him, okay, listen, here's the bottom line. I just sat over there for that whole afternoon the next day, went through it with the parents, went through it with the teachers, because the teachers, a lot of them had worked really hard, cried, commiserated, and we said, we're going to move on. We're going to go with John King. Three years later, we were out of 543 elementary schools in New York, including all the suburbs. All boys, African-American, we were number one out of 543. And the point is, if you put kids first, same way with Robin Hood, you put your constituents first, 
everything else falls away, you're going to do a hell of a job at accomplishing your mission. Although Robin Hood dominates your image, you're actively involved in a lot of other causes. Conservation is a big one for you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Everglades Foundation that you co-founded? The Everglades is America's second largest national park, and it's under attack because of agricultural runoff that has dumped too much phosphorus into the hydrology of the Everglades and is causing substantial changes over time. And so we've been trying to fight that fight for the past 30 years incrementally. Every year, we fight and fight and fight. We scrap for every dollar of federal funding we can for every project that we do. Cumulatively, it makes a big, big difference. I'm really hopeful and optimistic that that park will be back to what it was, say, 100 years ago in another two decades. The question is, who are the flag bearers? They're going to pick it up when our current generation of leaders and board members aren't there. Here's what I've learned in all the environmental battles I've been in, all the conservation causes. We'll never win the battle. The battle is too hard to win. What we've got to do is we've got to be the holding action for the next generation. We've got to be the people that can carry us forward so that there can be some solution down the road. Talk a little bit about the conservation programs you've been able to do in Africa with the wildlife reserve there. The conservation model in Africa is real simple. Find a national park, an iconic national park. Generally, they're surrounded by game reserves that are set aside for hunting concessions. Take those hunting concessions and convert them into ecotourism models. Do the ecotourism adjacent to the national park help fund the national park so that you're lifting the entire ecosystem and intensively manage that game reserve. I've done that in Zimbabwe, next to the Ganarazu National Park, Tanzania next to the Serengeti National Park, Zambia now next to Kafui National Park. And I think that's really the best model. We're going to have to pick maybe the 50 most iconic ecosystems and ring-fence them over the next 30 to 40 years because you've got a population that's supposed to go from a billion and a half to four billion. If it doesn't have consumptive value, the history of mankind is it's going to disappear. There were 50 million buffalo on the Great Plains. Their consumptive value was not as great as the crops that could be grown there, and that's why we now have 250,000 buffalo. So great ecotourism models hopefully will pay the local communities, the local neighbors, the local people enough to forego going into those areas or killing that gang. You used your business success to give deeper meaning to your life and others. From that vantage point, what advice would you give to young people just starting their adult life? My philosophy has been outward and forward. Don't look inward, look outward. Don't think about yourself. Think about somebody else. Don't look back. Look forward. That's the secret to a really, really happy life. Otherwise, your tombstone's going to say, before I got in the box, I knew myself really well, <laughs> which might be great, but I don't know how happy you'll necessarily be. If you're thinking about others and you're not worrying about the mistakes you make. God knows how many mistakes I've made. You're instead worrying about 
how you're going to make the people around you better, how they're going to make the world around you better. So take a small step. Do what you can. And, oh, by the way, the greatest people you'll ever meet in your life, look at our friendship, you meet through helping others. No doubt about it. As we wrap up, we always do a shout-out to those who've influenced us through math and magic. You live with the world of quants. Who's the person you admire most who influenced you on that logical quant side of life? Hmm. My biggest mentor in business was my first boss, Eli Tullis, closely followed by my uncle, Billy Donovan. Both of those guys were geniuses when it came to trading. And what they taught me was toughness. What Eli taught me was he just literally gotten slaughtered in the markets. I thought he lost like 75% of his net worth. And he had a lunch with the Garden Club in New Orleans. And those ladies came in, and he had the biggest smile on his face and was the most incredible gentleman, this debonair raconteur. And I thought, oh, my Lord, this is the strongest human being I've ever seen in my life. And I'll never forget that. So let's go to the magician side. Excluding you, who's the greatest showman you know, the creative type? I'll tell you who's had a huge impact on my life, God bless his soul, is Tony Robbins. He became my life coach in 93. He's so good at time management, creating an organizational framework to live your life in the most productive way, creating processes that you can follow, getting you to think about how I'm going to move forward, not worrying about what I've done in the past. Paul, you've created so much good in the world and continue to do it. Thanks for being here today and thanks for all you're doing. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Love talking with the voice of God anytime. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Paul. One, market incentives can motivate nonprofits to do better work. It's one of Paul's guiding principles at the Robin Hood Foundation. Two, know how much risk you're comfortable with. You can be a successful investor with high or low risk investments. But as Paul said, it's just as important to be able to get a good night's sleep. Three, Focus on long-term outcomes, not easy solutions. In philanthropy, Paul is always thinking about how he can have the biggest impact over the longest time. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. 
to the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.